Hello, and welcome back to Plantopia. Plantopia is the plant health podcast of the American Phytopathological Society. I am the host of Plantopia, Jim Bradeen, professor of plant pathology and associate vice president at Colorado State University. And today we're chatting with Evelyn Plattner-Height, who goes by Evie. Evie's currently a master's student in both plant pathology and entomology at Iowa State University, where she works on plant health challenges in mung bean, along with co-advisors, professors Darren Mueller and Matthew O'Neill. Before pursuing her master's, Evie earned her BS degree in agronomy, also from ISU, and she has extensive professional experiences, having worked in a commercial greenhouse, in plant diagnostics for Corteva, and as a research technician. Last year, Evie published her first peer-reviewed article in Plant Health Progress, a journal of the American Phytopathological Society. Evie is also very actively involved in leadership in our discipline. Currently, she is the president of the Plant Pathology Graduate Student Organization at ISU, and she is actively engaged in Women in Agriculture and Artificial Intelligence, or WIAA. In her role at WIAA, Evie helps plan and facilitate outreach activities for youth to educate about the use of AI in agriculture, including drones, rovers, and imaging applications. Between 2020 and 2022, Evie served as president of the Soil and Water Conservation Club at ISU and as a tutor for women in science and engineering. Evie also has a connection with the World Food Prize, which we will get into in just a moment. Evie has made several professional presentations at national and regional conferences. And finally, Evie has a very long list of honors and awards, underscoring her academic and leadership impacts. And today we're going to talk with Evie about her passions, goals, and impacts. You can follow Evie on LinkedIn at Evelyn Plattner Height. Evie, welcome to Plantopia. I thank you, Dr. Radin, for that great introduction. It's so great for me to be here today. I'm quite excited about this. You know, it's a little surreal for me. I have listened to Plantopia since, you know, 2021, and it's kind of a staple for me now. So it's quite exciting for me to be on here. Oh, that's great. Great to know. We, we are recording that, right? So everyone everyone heard that. So <laughs> <laughs> um, no, we, we are delighted to have you here. So thanks for taking time. I'm interested in, in you and your background. Um, could you tell us where you grew up? Yes. Yeah, so I grew up in Des Moines and I went to a Des Moines school just on the outside suburb. And in my high school, it was it was a moderately sized. We had around 200 students. However, I was one of the only students in my graduating class that went to something agriculture related. Later on, we had one more student going to agriculture communications, but I was the only one who decided to do um, something that's related to crops. And I think that that is super exciting. I obviously went to Iowa State for my undergraduate degree in agronomy, and now I'm here in my master's degree for plant pathology and entomology. Great. So, so did you actually grow up on a farm or do you have an egg background? I do not actually know. So I grew up in a suburb urban area. My grandfather did farm, so I knew what a farm was and I've been on a farm before. However, I hadn't had any experience actually farming or growing crops. So that's why some people are so impressed that I'm in agriculture because not a lot of people go into agronomy specifically, which is what I did my undergrad in, without much farming background. So no, in fact, I am a suburb girl. <laughs> so I need to know what the motivation is. So how did you discover agronomy or, or the plant sciences more broadly? 
Yeah, for sure. So to kind of get the full scope of things, I'll have to hop back to when I was in high school. So I worked in a greenhouse for three years while I was there. And, you know, having your first high school job, you kind of get the jobs that people don't really want who've been working there for a while. So one of those jobs at a greenhouse was pruning. And I got to spend all my time around plants. You know, we'd get these big shipments of geraniums and begonias from Florida. And when we get them here, they'd be covered in botrytis. So it was my job to kind of snip away all the parts of the plant, make it look nice for people to want to buy. Um, while I was also in high school, I was involved with the World Food Prize and kind of got firsthand experience in food insecurity in Iowa and also abroad. So that those two together, they kind of uh, meshed into, wow, agronomy would be a really great fit for me because I get to work with plants and I get to work with diseases, which were two of my favorite things from working at the greenhouse. But then I also get to work with food security and food stability, which is a super important thing to me as someone who did grow up in a school from Des Moines. A lot of the friends that I did have ended up being food insecure. So it was hard for me to watch that growing up. And I wanted to kind of do something to help our next generation not have to suffer as much as people do now. But it, all that kind of came together, but it started with some moldy geraniums and begonias back in Des Moines. <laughs> That's wonderful. You mentioned World Food Prize. T tell me a bit more about what you did with the World Food Prize and, and how long that lasted or still ongoing. Back in high school, my gifted and talented teacher kind of urged me to get involved with the World Food Prize, which was something that was happening in Des Moines. It's headquarters in Des Moines, so not that far. It's just a stone's throw from me. Um, as a high schooler, I was able to write papers and do research through the World Food Prize to learn more about food insecurity. And then I was later invited to global meetings that were held in Des Moines every year annually that had leaders from all over the world to talk about food sustainability and how we can get to that next level with people not only in U.S. alone, but also different countries. So it's a really great program that is able to connect high schoolers with global leaders and kind of encourage an investment from high schools into uh, food sustainability, agricultural sciences, and so on, maybe policymaking as well. Yeah, it's wonderful. It, uh, World Food Prize really is an extremely impactful um, event and, and a whole series of opportunities for, for uh, really lifelong training. So I'm glad to know that that has been such a key part in getting you where you're at today. Um, before we started recording, you you mentioned um, your your love for plants extends beyond the research that you're doing. Um, you, you said you have a few house plants. <laughs> a few might be a bit of an understatement. While while working at that greenhouse in Des Moines, I fell in love with house plants and landscaping. So in one of the rooms in my house, my husband, I don't know how he feels about it, but it's full of plants. So I've got 43 different species of plants in that room. I've got multiples of those species too. So it's just like a full jungle. You know, you walk in, it's kind of humid. It smells great. You can kind of relax in my little corner and get some homework taken care of or start writing. But yeah, no, houseplants and gardening, my favorite thing to do. I know that's very stereotypical for a plant pathologist and an agriculturalist, but I think I take it to the next level. <laughs> yeah, I think you do. Um, and that passion really comes through and that that is really something to, to admire. So you earned your degree in agronomy and, and now you're, you're doing a master's in plant pathology and entomology. Is that, you described it as a dual degree. Are you receiving two masters or, or how does that work? 
Yeah, for sure. So this is something kind of new to Iowa State University. I'm one of the first students to be completing this route. But in this degree, I will get a, I take all of the plant pathology courses and I take all of the entomology courses. And then I've got a project which is working on mung beans as an emergent crop in Iowa. And then out of that, I have an entomology component and a plant pathology component that will kind of come together, relate to each other, but that I can then write about, get my thesis out, and I will end up with a co-degree or dual degree. So I'll have both an entomology degree and a pathology degree. They won't necessarily be separate, you know, diplomas themselves, but it will be a combined degree where I did take all the classes and I did complete the projects for both degrees. You're going to be a very broadly trained scientist. Um, what do you see as some of the professional advantages of doing this dual degree? Sometimes I think people forget how closely related entomology and pathology can be because a good handful of plant diseases are vectored by insects. So in order to really understand that intimate relationship between those diseases and plants, you have to understand the vector itself. So I think that this gives me a really unique uh, advantage point where I'm able to understand, you know, the ecology, uh, the makeup and community of different insect vectors and then how they relate back to pathogens. Um, it's also allowed me to network both in the APS and the ESA. So I'm involved in both of these organizations. And I also get to interact with grad students on both levels and professors on both levels, which I absolutely love all of them in both of my degree kind of disciplines. It strikes me that your approach and your philosophy here really aligns with what a grower experiences. I mean, if you're a, you're a farmer or a, or a gardener or a nursery person, if there's something damaging your your plants, the distinction between disease and, and insect pest is somewhat arbitrary from the perspective of dealing with the problem itself. So it, it seems like your training gives you that, that breadth that allows you to deal with problems in, in a very real world context. It does. And I'm so grateful for that. I always say that farmers wear many hats, you know, they have to be, they have to be a planter, they have to be a pathologist and an entomologist and an economist and so many different things at the same time. So with both of these degrees, it allows me to begin to start to relate to that complex relationship that's going on between all those different disciplines and then farming. <laughs> Now, as one of the first students to go through this dual program, though, I'm sure there are some bumps as well. <laughs> what are some of the challenges that you're running into to, to to really be in two different disciplines? For sure. So I absolutely love taking all of the classes, but oh boy, sometimes does it start to kind of get crazy. So classes sometimes are offered in only certain years and certain semesters, just so the professors are able to teach multiple courses at the same time or uh, multiple courses within their uh, teaching ability. So sometimes I get really loaded up in the spring on like I'm taking three pathology courses and an entomology course on top of that when normal students might be just taking that entomology course. So that's definitely been a little bit of a struggle, but I honestly thrive with challenges and I love to learn. So it's kind of been refreshing for me in a way where I'm able to constantly keep busy and also have different different study material where I can learn a lot about entomology and then relate it back to pathology. Because there is a lot of over uh, crossing remarks in all of these classes that I am taking. So it's it's quite nice to, you know, learn about 
maybe this vector in an entomology class and then walk into a pathology class and, oh, wow, we're talking about that disease. So it, it's been great. Sure, there is a lot to kind of balance and juggle at the same time, but I, I think it'll be worth it in the end for sure. So, so one other challenge that you, you've, uh, certainly it's impacted your master's, I think also your undergrad degree, uh, that, that was the COVID pandemic. That was another uh, uh, pretty big challenge that uh, you, you faced. What was that like as a student to, to um, deal with the pandemic and, and your own personal advancement? Oh man. Yeah, no, for sure. So I started my undergraduate degree in 2019 that fall. So if you remember the timeline, that next semester, my spring semester COVID hit. So I only got one semester of in-person classes and like networking opportunities in my first year of undergrad, which was honestly kind of devastating for me. I mean, all your life, you're told by pop culture, your parents, family and friends that like college will be the best part of your life. So you better enjoy it. Like <laughs> I reminisce about my college days all the time, you know, we get those comments. And then my generation, and I guess I my heart goes out to the high schoolers who missed their uh, senior year, but those few years of students, you know, we didn't, we didn't get that same experience. And let me tell you, it is so much more complex and I guess just different altogether to be sitting in class with all of your classmates in a little block on Zoom and your professor just kind of droning on because there's no classroom participation. Everybody's cameras are off. Um, it's just not the same. I mean, we obviously did the best that we could with what we were given at the time, but man, it, it was just really, really hard to make that transition of going to class and getting to meet people in person. And then all of a sudden you're sitting in your room by yourself watching this camera and like taking frantic notes. But, um, I was lucky enough to have met some really stellar people that first semester. And I was able to continue to at least have some connection, but it did impact my mental health a ton, not to be able to be involved, I guess, uh, to the point that I was hoping to be. Classes were also certainly quite hard. I mean, I had to take some biology classes that were supposed to be laboratory-based biology classes on the computers. So you can imagine how different it is to dissect a pig on the computer when you're supposed to be dissecting it in real life. It's not, you know, tap, click, drag the mouse. It, there's a lot more to that type of stuff. So it, it definitely, you had to adapt and change your learning styles in order to kind of succeed in the pandemic year. But that that followed me throughout my entire undergrad. And just recently they said the pandemic is over. I saw that announcement from the government, but I had to do my entire undergrad through the pandemic and the first year of my master's degree through it. And it was just, it was isolating to be completely honest with you. So it's nice now that we're able to once again, meet in person and go through classes and actually get to network with people, get to know them more than just a screen to screen level. But no, it definitely was a huge challenge for me, my peers and the people below me coming into this degree too. Yeah, I appreciate you you talking so frankly about that and, uh, you know, really take to heart your comment about the impact on mental health, certainly, but also the way you learn, really needing to adapt to new modalities. Um, the same is true on the instructor side as well, uh, figuring out how to really utilize technology effectively. Uh, when you think about the pandemic, 
and how are our teaching and learning changed in that period? Are there aspects that you think really have that are better now than than before? One of the things that I've certainly noticed is that um, we've been able to add more technology-based applications into our learning here as students, especially at Iowa State University. No longer will uh, bad weather technically cancel or halt classes. We're able to now hold them on Zoom. Professors are more open to meeting on Zoom, which opens up different timing availabilities, especially for people who have jobs or uh, non-traditional students who may also be living at home or taking care of a family. Now that they've been more open to Zoom, we're able to connect easier with professors, also with our classmates online. It, it's It's been a really nice change in pace, and I do really think that it has helped a good majority of students, this change. So I, I, I do think that there were some great things to come out of it. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for your perspective on that. It's um, definitely difficult period to get through, and and hopefully we are more resilient and better able to to face what what comes next. I want to pivot now and talk a little bit about your your master's research, and you you've mentioned mung bean a couple of times, and I've had mung bean sprouts I think on the salad bar before but I really don't know very much about that crop. So could we start there? Um, could you tell us what mung beans are and how important they are to Iowa or the U.S.? Yeah, certainly. So yeah, I get so excited when somebody says that they've had mung beans before. A lot of people have actually eaten mung bean and they're not even aware of it. So that makes me super happy to hear. So mung beans are a legume. They're kind of similar to soybean in looks. They have the same stature, their leaves are just a little bit bigger, more broader, a little more lime green. But the biggest difference between mung bean and soybean, just physically, is soybeans produce pods along the center stem, um, while mung beans, this is super cool, will produce their pods above the canopy in like, like a hand or a star-like shape. And those pods are a lot more elongated. The seeds are a little bit smaller and they're green. But the big, big difference, I guess, in general from soybean and mung bean is that mung bean is a direct human food crop. While soybean is used for oils, it can be used for feed. Um, it, it does show up in food sometimes, but mung bean doesn't have that application. Mung bean is grown majority in the U.S. for direct consumption. So if you've ever had uh, like an Impossible Burger or like a plant-based meat alternative, you've probably eaten mung bean. If you've had uh, vegan eggs, you've probably eaten mung bean. Like you said, mung bean sprouts, uh, microgreens have become a huge thing here in the U.S. So most of them happen to be mung beans. So there is a lot of mung bean consumption going on in the U.S. right now. People just might not necessarily be aware of that. Can you give us a sense of how big of a, how important of a crop mung beans is in, in Iowa? Yeah, so there's no uh, acres currently being grown in Iowa in commercial use of mung bean. However, it's pretty big in Oklahoma. There's also some spots in Canada and Kansas, but the main growers of mung bean are in Southeast Asia and Southern Asia. So it's a very big cultural food for these areas. Um, it's something that is traditionally found in a lot of cuisine over there and other dishes. So we are trying to start that here in the U.S., uh, just because mung bean is a lot more drought tolerant than soybean is. So with the changing climate that, that a lot of farmers are starting to experience. We don't have to put up irrigators or we would be able to plant maybe mung bean instead of soybean in those areas. 
just due to its ability to be more okay with less rain. And your master's research focuses on managing both disease and insect problems in Mongbee. What what are some of those challenges that we're seeing in, in Iowa or in the U.S.? For sure. So there has not been a ton of research done on lung bean diseases and uh, lung bean insect pests. So we are kind of in that exploratory disease and insect community analysis stage. Right now, we're determining what insects feed on lung beans, how severe those could be, and then ways to control those if they happen to appear in outbreak years. For diseases, we're also kind of taking the same approach where we're figuring out what is on lung bean, what could potentially be destructive and serious on lung bean, and then ways that we can go about managing these diseases. So just this year, um, we have found a few first reports and quotations, um, just diseases that have shown up on soybean before, but happen to also show up on lung bean. And we're determining how severe those are going to be on our lung bean cultivars, and then kind of making recommendations, maybe spraying different planting dates, such and such to kind of manage those diseases. Kind of a fun side story is I had three locations of bung beans in central Iowa this year, and one of them had almost a 50 to 75% mortality rate in one of those fields because of rhizoctonia. So we did not put uh, seed treatment on lung bean just because that's what we had not planned to do for our uh, project where we were testing frog eye and septoria rates on lung beans, but turns out that rhizoctonia this year, the conditions must have been great. It was in a perfect spot. I mean, the soil was sandy. It was on a slope. Rhizoctonia was like, let's go. So uh, you don't really know what's going to happen sometimes with lung beans just because of how new it is to this area. That's not something that we kind of foresaw. Um, it's a lot different having to walk into your PI's office and be like, hey, guess what? A lot of my mung beans are dead, but we have a new disease we can now study in this field. So it, it's been great. It's not for everybody, but it's definitely for me. That's for sure. Yeah. And, and that's how biology is sometimes, mm -hmm. right? It's those, those chance encounters that really influence our understanding and, and often in the direction of our research. I'm curious for commercial growers in the U.S., are there, what are the disease management opportunities. Are, are there many pesticides that are approved uh, for use in mung bean, for example? For sure. So we don't have a lot right now that have mung beans specifically listed. We do have some with Vigna, which is the genus that can also include herd bean and beans related to that. So there are some that are labeled, but not a ton. So labels can be changed. And that's what we're trying to do is understand, I guess, more the interaction between the different sprays, which ones are going to control these diseases more and which ones that we might recommend in the future if mung bean does become a big crop in the U.S. because that's very true. I mean, you're not going to be able to grow anything without any, I mean, with no insecticide or fungicide that's able to be legally sprayed on it. So that's something that we're working with is just determining what we could use to control these populations. And again, mung bean is not huge in Iowa yet. This is more of a distance thing, but that's that's kind of our scope and what we're wanting to do is to encourage people to invest in mung bean. And in order for people to want to invest in mung bean, we have to guarantee ways to have some solid crop protection. Yeah, and, and what about the genetic diversity of that crop? Are there many varieties? Are there any that are bred specifically for U.S. production? 
Yeah, so there are a ton. The mung bean breeders here at Iowa State University have so many different uh, plots that they're working on, different cultivars that they're trying to develop. I work with two cultivars, two of the ones that are commercially grown here in the U.S., uh, Oklahoma 2000 and Birkin. These were both produced from uh, Oklahoma State University, I believe, and put out, I don't know, like two decades ago now. So there's a lot to be done with mung bean, and there's a lot of genetic variability. And now it's just figuring out which ones have the better trades, which ones we can put together, and what makes the best varieties. Sometimes I do feel, though, that disease and insect traits sometimes get overlooked just for yield value. So it's very nice for me to be able to be working on this and to have mung bean breeders on the committee so I could be like, hey, I think, you know, rhizoctonia is going to be a really big problem for mung bean in the future. It's not for soybean, but it's going to really be for mung bean. So what are what are our options for this? I just want you to be aware. Is this is this something for breeding or is this something for us to manage type thing? So it's been exciting to say the least. Yeah, and, and to work in a, a, a period of time where the, the climate is so variable and you know, see one disease pressure, one insect pest um, in, in one season and not the next, that's maybe um, going to be a lot more common. So it's great that you've got, that you're doing this work at this point before it is a major crop, um, but also that you've got that genetic diversity that you can, can really um, test and utilize at this point. I'm, I'm going to ask that crystal ball question now. So if you're you're looking ahead 10, 20, 25 years from now, what, what does mung bean production look like in the, the U.S.? I definitely think there is a huge application for mung bean, especially in areas that are currently growing soybean because mung bean is harvested. It is planted, stored, and sprayed with the same exact equipment that you use for soybean. So the switch from soybean to mung bean is super convenient for farmers. So I do hope to see that in the future. Um, we there, The market is developing. We have an elevator in Oklahoma that does take mung beans. Um, we're hoping to expand that to different places across the U.S. because if nobody takes them, nobody's going to plant them. So that's kind of where I see our biggest roadblock right now. Um, there's also a lot to be done with developing management programs for mung bean. Uh, that includes insect, disease, planting recommendations. I mean, we do have this research. A lot of it is out of other countries. So there are different climate. I mean, climate varies between these regions. I mean, uh, something that might work for China or might work for India might not work for a Nebraskan farmer or an Iowan farmer. So kind of fine tuning these management programs to fit the region that we're in, the climate that we're in, is going to be very important in these upcoming years. It's exciting. Um, we'll, we'll we'll touch base again in ten or fifteen or twenty years and see. Here we go. <laughs> but it does sound like a really promising crop, and the work you're doing sounds really uh, incredibly exciting. Um, I I want to mention too that um, you you uh, published your I think your your first uh, peer reviewed um, article in 2022. This was published in Plant Health Progress. Uh, screening mung bean accessions for susceptibility to soybean fungal diseases in Iowa. And we'll include a, a link to that article on the uh, plantopiapodcast.org landing page for this episode too. Now, another aspect of agriculture that you've been involved in is is through uh, women in agriculture and AI, artificial intelligence. Um, what is women in agriculture and AI? 
Yes. So this was a group that was started by Dr. Artie Singh. So she's also on my committee. She is an amazing mung bean breeder. But this group focuses on bringing in underrepresented communities into agriculture and then also showing them the application of technology and how this could be a really like innovative path for students. So like the name says, it's women in ag and AI. So it's mainly directed towards people who present themselves as female. However, we do have a very wide, wide span of people that we do connect with. We have been to some elementary schools to talk to students about like, look, corn is so cool. But like, look at the drone that we can use to like fly over and determine what diseases could be out there. We also have this little rover that can like drive through the soybean plants and identify insects that are sitting on there. I mean, you should see these kids' eyes light up when you show them this technology. So I personally think that this is a very important aspect of universities because as a student that came from a very urban area, I didn't have any sort of interaction with agriculture as a student. I mean, I knew what a farm was. I lived in Iowa, so I've seen corn before, but I had never really knew how important it is and how many different disciplines can like intertwine with agriculture. So as a student that did experience that, I love being a part of this where I get to talk to the next generation. I mean, how cool is that? I get to help influence what students might be interested in and uh, hopefully steer them towards agriculture and technology because that is going to be a huge frontier here. And so you're you're teaching, you've taught, I guess, at, at several different levels, um, the university level. Uh, but what you're talking about here really is it's a children, the K-12 space. How do you adapt your teaching approaches to be accessible for these very different audiences? For sure. So I have been a TA for multiple classes here at Iowa State University. That stuff gets very technical. You know, these students are at high levels. So to go from very technical classes about plant physiology and how plants work to working with fourth, fifth, sixth graders who this may be one of their first times seeing like a soybean is challenging but very rewarding these students i mean they're smarter than people give them credit for a lot of the times they're teaching me some things which is so cool i love it when that happens but you do have to alter your style so they stay engaged and i think that's sometimes the hardest thing for people in my area is going from talking at these very high complex and like developed ideas and bring it down to a level that a student is going to understand or that might interest the kid so instead of talking about, you know, like all these complex relationships b- between corn and insects, you got to be like, oh, what do you think ate this leaf? Oh, it was a grasshopper. That's so cool, isn't it now? So it's just, it's a lot, a lot different, but kids, they're smarter than we give them credit for. They catch on to a lot more and they ask some really, really deep questions. So it's, it's been great. I love, love working with younger students. Wonderful. It sounds like a very, very impactful program. Well, you're you're um, midstream, I guess, in your master's degree, and uh, clearly you're you're very passionate for plant health, um, whether we're talking insect pests or or diseases. Uh, where do you see your career going, or where do you want your career to go? For sure. So I do have two loves, both of them: plant pathology, the other one, entomology. Diagnostics has been a huge part of my life Um, since my undergraduate degree. I've been involved in a lot of diagnostic clinics for plant diseases, and I hope to be a part of that again in the future, especially now with the knowledge that I do have. I can bring in insect diagnostics as well. 
I used, I also use it a lot in my mung bean research, you know, outside in the field. It's like, oh, what is this? Let's bring it back to the lab and figure out. So I hope to somehow be involved in that again in the future. Um, I also do not want to lose my insect background that I have. So I'm really hoping to find a job that kind of marries both of these, maybe in some sort of IPM role. I love working with students. So I'm hoping that that kind of shapes into maybe extension in the future. Well, I'm sure of one thing, you've got a very bright career ahead of you and your passion, your breadth of training is going to serve you and, and our profession in the world really, really well. You mentioned involvement in APS as well as ESA. First of all, for our listeners, APS, the American Phytopathological Society, which is the uh, International Society for Plant Pathology, and ESA is the Entomological Society of America. So, so really the um, insect counterpart to, to APS. Would you elaborate a little bit on what your involvement's been and, and why you think these professional organizations have been important in your own development? For sure. So I have just gotten back for, I guess, a few months ago from the uh, North Central and Southwestern branch meeting for the ESA, where I was able to do a 10-minute oral presentation on uh, mung bean insect pests and maybe what to expect in the future. So it has connected me to a whole bunch of professionals that are like, you know, I haven't really heard of mung bean before. Would you be able to kind of talk to me more about it? So it's been great for networking for me. I also, uh, for the APS, have done a poster presentation when it was online for COVID, so that looks a lot different than it will now. And I will be here again at the National APS meeting in Denver here coming up. So just the ability to present my research to a bunch of different scholars and researchers and also people from industry has been highly impactful. And then it's also been really, really great to... Um, have access to the different publications that the APS puts out. Many a time have I referred to a compendium, especially in my diagnostic background. So that has been super influential in my, um, I guess, career path. And I really hope to continue to attend these meetings because I have gotten so much out of them, especially just from getting to collaborate with different people, getting to meet different graduate students and so on. As the, I am the president of the plant pathology GSO here at Iowa State University, and we've been able to reach out to different universities through the APS to kind of connect to their GSOs as well. So kind of having the APS help us bridge that, it's been it's been great. We've been doing it through the North Central Division, so it's awesome that they're able to help facilitate those bonds. And then we get to know people and students from different states. And then when we're at those meetings, you can be like, oh my goodness, I know you. This is, this is great that we get to see each other here. So it's it's been great. Exciting. Yeah. And I, I think throughout your entire career, you'll find that these organizations that networking that um, support that that our professional societies provide really can be a very important aspect, um, not only as a student, but but really as, as you continue to grow as a scientist throughout your career. So, Evie, um, my last question for you is uh, what advice do you have for um, other students or folks that are interested in plant pathology or entomology or, or maybe working in both fields? For sure. My biggest thing is to say yes. There are so many great opportunities that are going to come up to you. You might be a little hesitant because they might kind of be daunting, but sometimes those challenging experiences are the ones that you're going to value the most when you're done. So certainly don't discount yourself. Be sure to take those opportunities when they come up. I always say I'm an opportunist. 
if something kind of falls into my lap, of course I'm going to take it. So I want people to also do the same for them because there are some really great outcomes out there. Really excellent advice. Uh, this has been a really fun conversation. Um, thank you so much for being on Plantopia. Thank you so much for having me. This has been great. We just had a conversation with Evelyn Plattner-Height. Uh, Evie is a master's student at Iowa State University studying both plant pathology and entomology in a dual degree program. I'm Jim Bradeen, the host of Plantopia. Thanks so much for listening, and we will talk to you next time.